Welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Scanlon, a principal in the WNT International Tax Group. My co-host, Kristen Gamboa, will not be joining us today. She's a little bit under the weather, so I will be taking this all by myself today. Today, we'll be discussing Notice 2023-80, which the IRS released in December to address several important topics around the interaction of the Pillar 2 Global Anti-Base Erosion, or GLOBE, rules with the U.S. Foreign Tax Credit System, as well as our Dual Consolidated Loss, or DCL, rules. As we'll discuss, the notice also extends the temporary relief from the 2022 FTC final regulations that was initially offered by Notice 2023-55, which was released last July. For our discussion, we're joined by Seth Green and Doug Holland, both principals in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice. Seth is an old friend of the podcast, and Doug is a new friend. Hello, guys. Hey, Gary. It's great to be back. Hi, Gary. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So most of our discussion today will focus on the pillar two aspects of the notice. But first, we want to briefly touch on the extension of the relief offered with respect to the 2022 FTC final regulations. Seth, what are the key takeaways about this notice extending the temporary relief? Well, the first key takeaway seems to be that the government doesn't want to spend any more time thinking about the foundational issues of what is or is not a foreign income tax. They are kicking this can as far down the road as they know how to. As you were describing in notice 2023-55, they gave us a year of deferral from the regs that had gone final earlier. This time, they're telling us those regs are deferred basically until further notice. And there does not appear to be any reason to suspect that further notice is coming anytime soon. This is, I would describe it as a pretty big punt. And so that basically means with a couple of minor exceptions, we are back where we were for many, many years back into the 80s in terms of what does constitute a foreign income tax for which a credit can be claimed under 901-2. They did exclude a few provisions from the deferral of the effectiveness. Those provisions were, I think, the ones that they think were most important to target DSTs. But by and large, it is back to the status quo ante. And so people can just go back to what they were doing before we got any of this guidance. Of course, before we got any of this guidance, we did not have the GLOBE rules, which is why they felt the need to go a little bit further and start telling us about the GLOBE rules. Thanks, Seth. Now, let's move on to the main topic of conversation today, which is how the FTC and the DCL rules are expected to interact with the Pillar 2 GLOBE rules. While listeners may already be well-versed with the basics of the GLOBE rules at this point, it may be worth spending a moment on the manner in which Pillar 2 top-up taxes can be collected from a jurisdiction that is deemed to be low-taxed under these rules. When a multinational group that trips the revenue threshold for the GLOBE rules has an effective tax rate in a jurisdiction that's below 15%, a top-up tax may be imposed based on the extent to which 
that income falls short of the 15% threshold. This top-up tax may be collected in one of three ways. The local jurisdiction itself collects a top-up tax through a qualified domestic minimum top-up tax, or QDMTT. If the local jurisdiction has no such rule, a direct or indirect parent may collect it through an income inclusion rule, or IAR. And then, as the ultimate backstop, any jurisdiction in which the multinational group operates may be entitled to collect the top-up tax through an undertaxed profits rule, or UTPR, if the top-up tax hasn't already been collected through one of the first two mechanisms. Many jurisdictions, including Canada, the UK, Japan, and most of the EU, have already started implementing their IARs and QDMTTs starting 2024, though no UTPRs have been introduced just yet. So even though the U.S. itself has no current plans to implement the Pillar 2 rules, U.S.-based multinationals are already exposed to Pillar 2 taxes, either through QDMTTs or IARs imposed on their CFCs, or even U.S. sandwich entities held under jurisdictions implementing an IAR, unless they're protected under a transitional safe harbor. And the jurisdictional blending required through these top-up taxes does not interact very comfortably with U.S. domestic tax laws, such as the DCL rules, as we shall soon discuss. It is also important to note that not all global rules are treated the same. The QDMTTs differ from IARs and UTPRs in some meaningful ways. A particularly important distinction for purposes of this episode is that guilty, sub-F, and branch taxes are generally pushed down to the jurisdiction of the CFC or the branch for the purposes of calculating that jurisdiction's ETR for the IAR and UTPR, but aren't pushed down for calculating that same ETR when the top-up tax is being collected through a QDMTT. In other words, while IARs and UTPRs give credit to guilty sub-F and branch taxes, a QDMTT does not. Seth, does the notice tell us whether these globe top-up taxes meet the definition of a foreign income tax for purposes of the FTC rules? And if they are foreign income taxes, does that necessarily mean they're creditable? So the one thing the notice absolutely does not do is tell us whether any or all of these taxes are foreign income taxes in the sense of 901 and 901-2. They simply say they give us rules governing the creditability of any foreign income taxes that do result under GLOBE under various different scenarios, but they never affirmatively tell us that any of these taxes are foreign income taxes. Now, unless at least some of the taxes were foreign income taxes, this would be pretty pointless guidance. So I think we're relatively comfortable concluding that a QDMTT, and to be quite honest, an IIR, are foreign income taxes. But that's an implication of this guidance, not a holding or a statement in the guidance. And going further, I think it's relatively unlikely, although uncertain, it's relatively unlikely that the U.S. would ever hold that a UTPR, which is after all imposed on income in which the taxpayer will generally have no direct or indirect income. It's more of a brother-sister tax system than a taxing the earner of the income or an equity owner in the earner of the income. I think it is quite unlikely 
that the U.S. will ultimately view those kinds of taxes as taxes that are entitled to a credit. And I think the reason they would say, regardless of any of the other issues we're going to discuss today, that they are not creditable is that they are not taxes on income of the entity paying the taxes. So what does the notice tell us about the credibility of the QDMTT and the IAR? Without explicitly giving them those names, but pretty much, the notice would tell us that a QDMTT is creditable and an IIR is likely non-creditable. And the reason relates to the point that you mentioned earlier, the availability of a credit for taxes paid upstream of the entity being tested. So in particular, a IIR, which does give credit for amounts included under a CFC regime, such as our subpart F or guilty rules, such a tax would be non-creditable to the extent that it is taken into account by a U.S. shareholder whose taxes would be part of that computation, part of that ETR computation. Conversely, in the case of the QDMTT, those upstream taxes are irrelevant, and therefore they should be creditable in full. You mentioned about the situation where U.S. shareholders' taxes are being taken into account, but can you unpack that a bit more? Sure. The GLOBE rules focus on a multinational enterprise, multinational group, and their constituent entities, which are largely the entities who are included in consolidated financial statements, which is largely controlling interests. So where you have a minority shareholder, and that minority shareholder still could be a U.S. shareholder for purposes of subpart F, that minority shareholder's taxes paid are not part of the globe computation. And so that U.S. shareholder would be entitled to claim a credit for their pro rata share of an IIR. But note, it is an if test, and we're asking which shareholders taxes are or are not taken into account. So that minority shareholder can take into account its full pro rata share of globe taxes, whereas the majority U.S. shareholder, the one who is part of the multinational group whose taxes are taken into account under the IIR, that U.S. shareholder can take into account none of its pro rata share of IIR taxes. So Seth, does this leave some double tax in the system? Yeah, it could. Probably it even does. Because you would note I was focusing there on pro rata share, and there doesn't seem to be any mechanism, at least under current law, that would say if I've got an 80-20 split, there's no mechanism for saying the IIR tax, which might be entirely attributable to the fact that there was no credit for the 20% U.S. shareholder, there's no special allocation of IIR to the minority shareholder for purposes of computing your pro rata share, at least not under current law. So in that sense, that IIR, the shortfall, the fact that Globe is collecting the tax would reflect that there is a minority shareholder. If all of those taxes were allocated to the minority shareholder and the U.S. then gave a credit for that Globe tax, we would completely avoid double taxation. 
But where the U.S. would spread that tax, even though it's economically attributable to the minority shareholder, they would spread that tax between the majority and the minority shareholder. Yeah, there's probably some double tax at play. Thanks, Seth. So let's move on to DCLs. Uh, Dual consolidated losses are always a mystery to me. Doug, before we get into what the notice says about DCLs, can you give a brief overview of what purpose the dual consolidated loss rules are meant to serve? Thanks, Gary. Happy to. Imagine most listeners have probably heard that the DCL rules are designed to prevent double dipping of losses and also that they're kind of infamously complex and apply when you think they ought not to. The original focus of the DCL rules was U.S. corporations that were also tax residents somewhere else. So think like a company organized in Delaware that was also controlled and managed in the U.K. And the multinational group there would isolate, you know, either borrowing costs or other losses in that entity. And by doing so, they'd be able to use the losses and the deductions to offset both the U.S. income on the U.S. return and then also surrender it in group relief in the U.K. So Congress back in the 86 Reform Act enacted a provision that prevented the sharing of losses by those types of dual resident entities. But within that, government also gave Treasury the authority to expand the rules to cover other types of potentially double-dipping arrangements. And so in modern times, where these rules most often come up are with U.S. multinational groups owning foreign hybrid entities, foreign corporations that we've made check-the-box elections to be treated as partnerships or disregarded entities. Those are called separate units or hybrid entity separate units or permanent establishments in another country that have a tax residency there and function like a DRE there as well. So what the DCO rules say is that if you have a loss in one of these separate units or in the less common true dual resident company scenarios that would ordinarily be includable on the U.S. tax return, you're not allowed to include that loss and can only use it against other income earned by that entity in other years instead. But the main exception there is that if the taxpayer pinky swears that they're not using any of the loss to offset anyone else's income in the foreign jurisdiction, they're allowed to file what's called a domestic use election and get back to the sort of the baseline of including the loss within their U.S. return pursuant to the normal kind of tax status of the entity in question. Doug, can you explain how a domestic use election works and then how is a foreign use, a term I've heard quite often in this context, implicated? A domestic use election is an agreement that the taxpayer files with their tax return So it's sort of a contract between the taxpayer and the IRS. And what the taxpayer is certifying there is that there has not been a foreign use, I'll get to that in a second, of the DCL in the year at issue, and also that there won't be a foreign use during the certification period, meaning the next five years. And so it's a very similar framework to gain recognition agreements for outbound stock transfers which a lot of practitioners maybe see more often in their daily lives in the international tax space. The foreign use concept is really getting at the heart of the double dipping 
prohibition in the DCL rules. And how the regime sets this up is that a foreign use is considered to occur when any part of the deductions or losses included in the DCL, which again is a U.S. tax loss of a separate unit or a dual resident entity, is made available, that's another kind of term of art, to offset income in a foreign country's tax system that we see as attributable to a foreign corporation. And so the idea there is that the loss in the separate unit or the dual resident entity is flowing onto the U.S. return, and then it's also being used in the foreign jurisdiction to offset income that's not flowing into the U.S. return. For listeners who are familiar with the ATAD 2 rule, that's sort of non-dual inclusion income. And so to make the domestic use election, taxpayers have to certify that there's been no foreign use. Ordinarily, a foreign use happens when the separate unit or the dual resident entity is joining in tax consolidation with one of these foreign affiliates that's treated as a foreign corporation, right? So think German or Gonschaft or a Dutch fiscal unity or in the UK surrendering losses via group relief. The made available standard there sort of requires some mechanism under the foreign tax law to share or net together the income and loss of the separate unit with the uh, these other entities that are not separate units. And so with the way things broadly work in a lot of cases, prior to Pillar 2 anyway, is that if a U.S. group has these separate units and they generate DCLs, then you're allowed to make the domestic use election for them so long as they're not actually joining in tax consolidation with prohibited foreign affiliates. There's other issues that come up with foreign uses, including when entities sort of change their status, and there's also a kind of indirect payment rule similar to the imported mismatch concepts in some of the ATAD rules. But broadly speaking, the touchstone is whether your foreign hybrids are in tax consolidation with prohibited affiliates. And one other thing to mention is, let's say you file a domestic use election, you then have to monitor this sort of foreign use potential throughout the certification period the following five years. And if you do have a foreign use or what's called another type of triggering event, such as selling off the entity to a third party or outbounding it and changing its U.S. tax status, there's a capture provision that says taxpayers have to re-include the DCL that they previously deducted. And so you're forfeiting the benefit of the loss when that happens with a triggering event. So, Doug, that's really helpful background, but let's get to the meat of the matter now. How can a foreign use come up in the context of the GLOBE rules? The challenge the GLOBE rules are really presenting here is that, and I'll just kind of focus on QDMTTs here for now, that there's essentially now a different path, the QDMTT, for the deductions and losses that are taken into account by the separate unit to be made available in the foreign country. And so, again, we're sort of focused here on scenarios where there's not kind of regular income tax consolidation. So as an example, let's say a U.S. group has a Canadian ULC that's a disregarded entity, file an 8858 for it, it flows into the U.S. return, that entity generates a loss and that's a DCL. Canada doesn't have regular tax consolidation rules. And so you would ordinarily think you'd be able to just file the domestic use election for the entity. But let's say that US group also has a Canadian CFC that may or may not generate income in the year. But if Canada enacts a QDMTT, the profit and loss results of both the Canadian ULC, that's a separate unit, 
and the Canadian CFC are going to be mandatorily combined through the jurisdictional netting rules in the Pillar 2 globe calculations. And so when you think of it that way, in that the QDMTT is sort of like a book-based corporate AMT, it looks like you're making the deductions of your separate unit entity that has the DCL kind of available to offset the income of the Canadian CFC. And that looks like a traditional foreign use result anyway, even if it's not through the traditional path of the regular income tax. And so to be sure, you know, this is kind of raised a lot of questions. There's a big difference between using the loss and regular tax consolidation where there's a sort of visible reduction to the group's overall corporate income tax expense as a result of that blending with a QDMTT or a safe harbor calculation, netting these calculations together may not produce any change to the group's tax liability, right? If the Canadian CFC pays enough tax on its earnings and then you combine them together and it's still a high tax jurisdiction, the QDMTT won't apply and there's just sort of no tax reduction and the offset kind of happened in the forest where no one was around to hear it. And so for that reason, there's been a lot of discussion and push for the government to come up with a way to exempt or provide some relief here. The DC regulations do have a specific provision built in that says Treasury can, through publishing a revenue procedure or something else in the Internal Revenue Bulletin, provide exceptions to foreign use and triggering event results. And there was comment letter on point to that effect in the middle of last year. And from what we've understood, informal discussions along those lines that have been going on since this issue percolated up in the past year. How does the notice actually address this issue? So the notice, unfortunately, kind of punts on it, at least for what happens immediately in 2024. The government just sort of raises these issues, acknowledges them, and then says that it's under consideration. What the notice does offer some relief on is what are called legacy DCLs. Those are DCLs that were incurred in years prior to when the GLOBE rules take effect, use 2024 for calendar companies. And so the scenario there, it's a little bit subtle, is let's say that your U.S. group filed domestic use elections for your Canadian ULC, go with that one again, back in 2022 and 2023, and now we get up to 2024 and the Pillar 2 rules are in effect. One of the issues with the DCL calculations that sometimes is a big trap for the unwary and makes people pull their hair out when dealing with them is that a lot of times there's timing differences between the foreign tax law and the U.S. income tax law on when deductions are recognized. And that particularly happens around sort of long life deductions like pension expenses with our 404 cap A rules or depreciation and amortization and different recovery lives. And so let's say there's some deductions that were taken into account for U.S. tax purposes back in 22 or 23 and fed into the DCL rules in those years. And then in 2024, they become deductible in 24 for foreign tax purposes, like our Canadian situation. And at that point in 24 are included within a QDMTT calculation for 2024. Hyper-technically, if you think that a foreign use arises through the Pillar 2 rules, create a later in time foreign use in 2024 of those deductions that were claimed in 22 or 23, 
and force the clawback recapture event for those previously made domestic use elections. So it's a pretty esoteric point to go through all that. And that may not have been on a lot of listeners' radars as something they even needed to worry about. But that's what the relief that's actually in the notice for DCLs addresses, is that for any domestic use selections filed in pre-2024 years, you're not going to have this hyper-technical phantom recapture event where you would have to include a, a whole bunch of income in your 24 tax year as a result of the Pillar 2 years taking effect. So at least we don't have to worry about that, I guess. So we don't have to worry about past DCLs, but it doesn't answer the fundamental question for DCLs that are arising today. Do we have any practical advice for taxpayers who are dealing with that and any thoughts about where this is going? Sure. I'm going to take the second one of those first. In terms of where this will all go, we're very hopeful that the government's going to provide some relief here as just being included within Pillar 2 top-up calculation is really quite a different thing than the type of regular corporate income tax consolidation and arbitrage that the DCL rules were aimed at. Although in fairness, there you know may be some differences if the country at issue has a QDMTT as just sort of a top-up to their regular corporate income tax, as opposed to those countries where the QDMTT really is the only income tax that's functioning there. In terms of practical advice, like with a lot of bad news, I think it's sort of getting your arms around the scope of the problem and then seeing what you can do to play defense. On the scoping front, it's really trying to understand and know where your hybrid entities and branches have losses and where you would have affiliates that are potentially going to be combined under the Pillar 2 mandatory combination rules with a jurisdictional blending. And then on the defense front, one way that DCLs can be used without this domestic use election is on piggybacking previously earned income. That's sometimes called the DCL or the Surly Register. And so getting a handle on that attribute for your hybrid entities and branches can be a very worthwhile exercise anytime, but especially now. And then beyond that, much sort of like after BEAT took effect in the TCGA a couple of years ago, considering different payment flows and organizational structure for the entities at issue may help to mitigate some of the potential effects here if we don't get the relief we're hoping for. In case this wasn't fun enough to listen and think through, in the December administrative guidance, the OECD basically incorporated a version of the DCL rules into the safe harbor computation process. And how that's going to interact with all this is just another layer of complexity that we'll probably have to save for another time. Thank you, Seth and Doug, for joining us today to discuss the Notice 2023-80 and the interaction with the Pillar 2 Globe Rules and FTCs and DCLs. We'll keep an eye out for further guidance from Treasury and IRS and also worldwide developments as implementation of Pillar 2 moves forward. As always, please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax to stay up to speed on the latest developments in U.S. international tax. Until our next episode, take care.